Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The early years of the Quebec colony were hard, and the population grew slowly. Samuel de Champlain administered its affairs and took personal charge of an organized exploration of the unknown interior. Let's learn more about this with the help of our friends at LibriVox. Champlain's journeyings with the Indians were the holiday of his life, for at no other time was he so free to follow the bent of his genius. First among the incentives which drew him to the wilderness was his ambition to discover the pathway to China. In 1608, the St. Lawrence had not been explored beyond the Lachine Rapids, nor the Richelieu beyond Chambly, while the Ottawa was known only by report. Beyond Lake St. Louis stretched a mysterious world, through the midst of which flowed the Great River. For an explorer and a patriot, the opportunity was priceless. The acquisition of vast territory for the French crown, the enlargement of the trade zone, the discovery of a route to Cathay, the prospect of Arcadian joys and exciting adventures, besides such promptings, hardship and danger, became negligible. And when exploring the wilderness, Champlain was in full command. Off the coast of Norumbega, his wishes, as geographer, had been subject to the special projects of de Mont and Poutrecourt. At Fontainebleau, he waited for weeks and months in the antechambers of prelates or nobles. But when conducting an expedition through the forest, he was lord and master, a chieftain from whose arquebus flew winged to death. The story of Champlain's expeditions along these great secluded waterways and across the portages of the forest makes the most agreeable page of his life both for writer and reader, since it is here that he himself is most clearly in the foreground. At no point can his narrative be thought dull, compact as it is and always in touch with energetic action. But the details of fur trading at Tadoussac and the Sault St. Louis, or even of voyaging along the Acadian seaboard, are far less absorbing than the tale of the canoe and the war party. Amid the depths of the interior, Champlain reaped his richest experiences as an explorer. With the Indians for his allies and enemies, he reached his fullest stature as a leader. It is not important to dwell upon the minor excursions which Champlain made from his headquarters at Quebec into the country of the Montagnais, an Algonquin tribe dwelling to the north of the St. Lawrence, for the most part between the Saguenay and the St. Maurice. He saw little of the rocky northland which, with its myriad lakes and splendid streams, sweeps from the St. Lawrence to Hudson Bay. Southward and westward lay his course to the cantons of the Iroquois south of Lake Ontario, and the villages of the Hurons north of Lake Simcoe. Above all, the expeditions of 1609, 1613, and 1615 are the central episodes of his work as an explorer, each marked by a distinct motive and abounding with adventures. In 1609 he discovered Lake Champlain and fought his first battle with the Iroquois. In 1613, he was decoyed by a lying guide into a fruitless search for the Northwest Passage by the route of the Ottawa. In 1615, he discovered Lake Huron, traversed what is now central Ontario, and attacked the Iroquois in the heart of their own country. These three journeys make the sum of Champlain's achievements as a pioneer of the interior. For all three, likewise, we have his own story, upon which all other versions are based, and from which they draw their most striking details. The discovery of Lake Champlain had its root in Champlain's promise to the Algonquins that he would aid them in their strife with the Iroquois. In turn, this promise was based upon the policy of conciliating those tribes from whom the French derived their supply of furs, and with whom, throughout the St. Lawrence Basin, they most constantly came in contact. It was the year which followed the founding of Quebec. Of the twenty-eight who entered upon the first winter, eight only had survived, and half of these were ailing. 
On June 5, relief came in the person of Desmarais, who announced that his father-in-law, Pontgrave, was already at Tadoussac. Champlain at once set out to meet him, and it was arranged that Pontgrave should take charge of the settlement for the coming year, while Champlain fulfilled his promise to aid the Algonquins in their war with the Iroquois. The full plan required that Pontgrave should spend the winter in Canada, while Champlain, after his summer campaign, was to return to France with a report of his explorations. The Indians had stated that the route to the land of the Iroquois was easy, and Champlain's original design was to proceed in a shallop capable of carrying twenty Frenchmen. Early in July he reached the mouth of the Richelieu, but on arriving at Chambly he found it quite impossible to pass the falls with his shallop. Either the expedition must be abandoned, or the plan be radically changed, with the consequence of incurring much great risks. To advance meant sending back the shallop with its crew and stores, embarking in a canoe, and trusting wholly to the good faith of the Indians. The decision was not easy. I was much troubled, says Champlain, and it gave me a special dissatisfaction to go back without seeing a very large lake, filled with handsome islands, and with large tracts of fine land bordering on the lake, where their enemies lived, according to their representations. After duly thinking over the matter, I determined to go and fulfill my promise and carry out my desire. Accordingly, I embarked with the Indians, in their canoes, taking with me two men, who went cheerfully. After making known my plan to Desmarais and others in the shallop, I requested the former to return to our settlement with the rest of our company, giving them the assurance that in short time, by God's grace, I would return to them. Having convinced himself, Champlain was next forced to convince the Indians, whose first impulse was to abandon the campaign when they found that they would be accompanied by only three of the Frenchmen. Champlain's firmness, however, communicated itself to them, and on July 12 they set out from Chambly Basin to commence the portage. At the top of the rapid a review of forces was held, and it proved that the Indians numbered sixty men, equipped with twenty-four canoes. Advancing through a beautifully wooded country, the little war party encamped at a point not far below the outlet of Lake Champlain, taking the precaution to protect themselves by a rough fortification of tree trunks. At this point Champlain introduces a graphic statement regarding the methods which the Indians employ to guard against surprise. On three sides they protect the camp by fallen trees, leaving the river bank without a barricade in order that they may take quickly to their canoes. Then, as soon as the camp has been fortified, they send out nine picked men in three canoes to reconnoiter for a distance of two or three leagues. But before nightfall these scouts return, and then all lie down to sleep without leaving any pickets or sentries on duty. When Champlain remonstrated them for such gross carelessness, they replied that they worked hard enough during the daytime, the normal formation of an Indian war party embraced three divisions, the scouts, the main body, and the hunters, the last always remaining in the rear and chasing their game in a direction from which they did not anticipate the appearance of the enemy. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
Having arrived at a distance of two or three days' march from their enemies, they united in a single party, save for the scouts, and advanced stealthily by night. At this juncture their food became baked Indian meal, soaked in water. They hid by day and made no fire, save that required to smoke their tobacco. Thus does Champlain describe the Indians, which as he is about to fall upon his foe. He gives special prominence to the soothsayer, who on the eve of battle enters into elaborate intercourse with the devil. Inside a wooden hut, the necromancer lies prostrate on the ground, motionless. Then he springs to his feet and begins to torment himself, counterfeiting strange tones to represent the speech of the devil, and carrying on violent antics which leave him in a stream of perspiration. Outside the hut, the Indians sit round on their haunches like apes, and fancy that they can see fire proceeding from the roof, although the devil appears to the soothsayer in the form of a stone. Finally, the chiefs, when they have by these means learned that they will meet their enemy and kill a sufficient number, arrange the order of battle. Sticks a foot long are taken, one for each warrior, and these are laid out on a level place five or six feet square. The leader then explains the order of battle, after which the warriors substitute themselves for the sticks and go through the maneuvers till they can do them without confusion. From this description of tactics we pass speedily to a story of real war. Reaching Lake Champlain, the party skirted the western shore, with fine views of the green mountains, on the summit of which Champlain mistook white limestone for snow. On July 29, at Crown Point, the Iroquois were encountered at about ten o'clock in the evening. Thus the first real battle of French and Indians took place near that remarkable spot where Lake Champlain and Lake George draw close together, the Ticonderoga of Howe, the Carillon of Montcalm. The Algonquins were in good courage, for, besides the muskets of the three Frenchmen, they were inspired by a dream of Champlain that he had seen the Iroquois drowning in a lake. As soon as the enemy saw each other, both began to utter loud cries and make ready their weapons. The Algonquins kept out on the water. The Iroquois went ashore and built a barricade. When the Algonquins had made ready for battle, they dispatched two canoes to the enemy to inquire if they wished to fight, to which the latter replied that they wished nothing else. But they said that at present there was not much light, and that it would be necessary to wait for day so as to be able to recognize each other, and that as soon as the sun rose they would offer us battle. This was agreed to by our side. Meanwhile, the entire night was spent in dancing and singing on both sides, with endless insults and other talk, as how little courage we had, how feeble a resistance we should make against their arms, and that when day came we should realize it to our ruin. Ours also were not slow in retorting, telling them that they would see such execution of arms as never before, together with an abundance of such talk as is not unusual in the siege of a town." Care had been taken by the Algonquins that the presence of Champlain and his two companions should come to the Iroquois as a complete surprise. Each of the Frenchmen was in a separate canoe, convoyed by the Montenay. At daylight, each put on light armor and, armed with an arquebus, went ashore. Champlain was near enough the barricade to see nearly two thousand Iroquois, stout and rugged in appearance. They came at slow pace towards us with a dignity and assurance which greatly impressed me, having three chiefs at their head. Champlain, when urged by his allies to make sure of killing the three chiefs, replied that he would do his best, and that in any case he would show them his courage and good will. Then began the fight, which must be described in Champlain's own words, for in all his writings there is no more famous passage. As soon as we had landed, they began to run for some two hundred paces towards their enemies, who stood firmly, not having as yet noticed my companions, who went into the woods with some Indians, our men began to call me with loud cries, and in order to give me a passageway they opened in two parts and put me at their head, where I marched some twenty paces in advance of the rest, until I was within about twenty paces of the enemy, who at once noticed me, and halting, gazed at me, 
as I did also at them. When I saw them make a move to fire at us, I rested my musket against my cheek and aimed directly at one of the three chiefs. With the same shot, two fell to the ground, and one of their men was so wounded that he died some time after. I had loaded my musket with four balls. When our side saw the shot so favorable for them, they began to raise such loud cries that one could not have heard at thunder. Meanwhile, the arrows flew on both sides. The Iroquois were greatly astonished that two men had been so quickly killed. Although they were equipped with armor woven from cotton thread and with wood, which was proof against their arrows, this caused great alarm among them. As I was loading again, one of my companions fired a shot from the woods, which astonished them anew to such a degree that seeing their chiefs dead, they lost courage and took to flight, abandoning their camp and fort and fleeing into the woods, whither I pursued them, killing still more of them. Our Indians also killed several of them and took ten or twelve prisoners. The remainder escaped with the wounded. Fifteen or sixteen were wounded on our side with arrow shots, but they were soon healed. The spoils of victory included a large quantity of Indian corn, together with a certain amount of meal, and also some of the native armor which the Iroquois had thrown away in order to effect their escape. Then followed a feast and the torture of one of the prisoners, whose sufferings were mercifully concluded by a ball from Champlain's musket, delivered in such wise that the unfortunate did not see the shot. Like Montcalm and other French commanders of a later date, Champlain found it impossible to curb wholly the passions of his allies. In this case, his remonstrances had the effect of gaining for the victim a coup de grace, which may be taken as a measure of Champlain's prestige. The atrocious savagery practiced before and after death is described in full detail. Champlain concludes the lurid picture as follows. This is the manner in which these people behave towards those whom they capture in war for whom it would be better to die fighting or to kill themselves on the spur of the moment, as many do, rather than fall into the hands of their enemies. Beyond the point at which this battle was fought, Champlain did not go. At Ticonderoga he was within eighty miles of the site of Albany. Had he continued, he would have reached the Hudson from the north in the same summer the half-moon entered it from the mouth. Henry Hudson, an English mariner with a Dutch crew, entered the mouth of the Hudson in a boat called the half-moon on September 4, 1609. As named by him, the river was called the Great North River of New Netherland. But the Algonquins were content with their victory, though they candidly stated that there was an easy route from the south end of Lake George to a river flowing into the sea on the Narambega coast near that of Florida. The return to Quebec and Tadoussac was attended by no incident of moment. The Montagnais, on parting with Champlain at Tadoussac, generously gave him the head of an Iroquois and a pair of arms with the request that they be carried to the King of France. The Algonquins had already taken their departure at Chambly, where, says Champlain, we separated with loud protestations of mutual friendship. They asked me whether I would not like to go into their country to assist them with continued fraternal relations, and I promised that I would do so. As a contribution to geographical knowledge, the expedition of 1609 disclosed the existence of a noble lake to which Champlain fitly gave his own name. Its dimensions he considerably overestimated but in all essential respects its situation was correctly described, while his comments on the flora and fauna are very interesting. The garpike, as he saw it, with amplifications from the Indians as they had seen it, gave him the subject for a good fish story. He was deeply impressed, too, by the richness of the vegetation. His attack on the Iroquois was not soon forgotten by that relentless foe, and prepared a store of trouble for the colony he founded. But the future was closed to his view, and for the moment his was the glorious experience of being the first to gaze with European eyes upon a lake fairer and grander than his own France could show. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette.
and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.